panel on RNZ National. Uh, we have Simon Pound and Alexia Russell with me today. And to the news that, uh, well, no one really wanted, Met Service have warned that Hawke's Bay, Auckland, East Coast, Wairarapa and Coromandel are all set to be hit by heavy rain and severe thunderstorms. This morning, the weather warning for Hawke's Bay was upgraded to an orange heavy warning, with the region expected to get about or up to 200 millimetres of rain. Met Service broadcast meteorologist Angus Hines with us. Kia ora, Angus. Wallace, how are you doing this afternoon? Very well, Angus. Thanks uh, again for being with us. What is this rainfall likely to look like? How significant? Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be pretty wet for the whole of the North Island in the coming couple of days. We've already started to see showery weather hit many spots, and that's only going to fill in and become more persistent rainfall with heavier spells in there, um, particularly from Friday afternoon through Friday night and into Saturday morning. So we've gone ahead and issued a number of uh, heavy rain watches and warnings. The primary area at the moment which we are most concerned with is the Hawke's Bay region, and of course completely unwelcome any rain that arrives there yeah. at the moment still reeling from uh, from Cyclone Gabriel just a short time ago. But it's the northern half of the Hawke's Bay area which is uh, likely to pick up some of the larger rainfall totals. As you said, could be up to 200 millimetres in places and that includes some of those places that were most hard hit just uh, just a few days ago like the Esk Valley and the Wairua District. So it is more incoming rain. The numbers we're looking at this time around, not the same as what we looked at last time around. The, the rainfall is not expected to be as severe but of course this rain coming in now is falling onto completely saturated, waterlogged parts of the country. So there's no drainage really expected. That's the issue, isn't it? Exactly. Just Mm. has to drain out there. So the rain in the hills very quickly starts to fill the rivers. So they swell up quickly and become treacherous. And the rain falling on those low-lying areas, it doesn't take that much before we start to see those same weather impacts rear up again. Whether that's further slips and landslides or further floods, they're possible through those, those eastern regions in the next couple of days. Okay, Angus, thank you for that, and we'll keep uh, updated across RNZ for now. Kia thank you. That's um, its service broadcast meteorologist Angus Hines here giving us a quick, uh, a quick update on the uh, rain to come and actually falling now, I think it's due uh, now or was, and if you are in Hawke's Bay or areas that uh, are starting to see rain, uh, keep in touch with us, 2101. You can email the panel at rnz.co.nz. And turning our focus to this, a ministerial inquiry has been announced into land use causing wood debris, including forestry slash. The two-month inquiry will help address the impacts of weather events such as cyclones, hail and Gabrielle and earlier events. Forest slash is the scrap timber branches and offcarts. Images of seeing forest slash slamming into and completely busting bridges has shocked the New Zealand public. And our guest now called for a formal independent commission of inquiry into forest slash weeks before Cyclone Gabrielle. And that is Environmental Defence Society Chief Executive Gary Taylor. Kia ora, Gary. Kia ora. So yeah, we I mean we had you on the panel about uh was about three weeks before the cyclone, the latest one. There must be a sense of we knew this issue would happen again. Well, I think um I mean that doesn't help, does it really, to say that, but uh I think we had been warning uh government for some time that the rules governing uh plantation forestry are inadequate and won't protect the environment. 
no one could have envisaged, uh, you know, the deluge that uh, that has come since, of course. Uh, and it's just a, a tragedy that, uh, you know, for people, but also for the environment, uh, you know, our precious country getting uh, trashed like this is, is not a good thing to see. So a ministerial inquiry has been announced uh, today and you called for a formal independent commission of inquiry. Does this uh, look okay to you? The terms and references, not quite sure if they've been released yet, but uh, how does this new square with you? Yes, I've seen the terms of reference. They've obviously been crafted by someone who knows what they're doing. They're quite broad. They enable the, uh, the ministerial inquiry to look at there should be changes to the regulatory settings for forestry, uh, which, of course, is the thing that we've been arguing for, so we're pleased about that. Um, I think Hekia Parata would do a good job chairing it. She's very experienced. Bill Bayfield, the former CEO of Environment Canterbury, is a kind of no-nonsense kind of person who, who will get to the bottom of this. And they've got a technical expert there, too, whom I don't know, but is obviously well-regarded. All right, Alexia. Gary, does it worry you that successive ministers seem to have, um, you know, they'll go along and have a wee chat behind closed doors chat to the, the forestry industry and they'll come out saying, well, you know, a lot of it's native and it's not all the forestry companies' um, problem, point, you know, issue, and um, that, you know, that it's such a valuable export industry that, that it's paid them literally, <laughs> ministerially, to play it down? I, well, I agree. Uh, it's, it's, it's surprising the degree of leverage that the forest sector has over successive governments. Um, and I really think, if I can be frank, that Minister Nash could well do uh, to stop being such a cheerleader for the sector and be a bit more of an independent arbiter of its performance. Um, I think part of the problem is that most of these forestry companies are offshore-owned, and so we are pretty well out of sight uh, from from the actual owners who control them. And so, uh, you know, there's not that direct uh, connection between the owners and, and the communities that they're working in. Because it's an interesting parallel, isn't it? If you if you had a building site that was leaching toxic chemicals or you didn't fence it off, you, you'd be up for massive fines and someone would tell on you. But it seems like this happens sort of out of, you know, rural areas, out of the way of big populations, and like you say, owned offshore, that they've been sort of getting away with it. Yeah, they haven't got away with it completely. Brisbane District Council has prosecuted five companies in the last 18 months uh, for, you know, slash-related and, and sediment runoff transgressions. But, um, you know, it's it's kind of small beer when you consider the revenues that these companies have. Um, one of the things that the resource management reforms are going to do is rapid, vastly increase the, the penalties for environmental transgressions of this kind. So, you know, that might be more of a wake-up for them. All right, Simon. It also feels like, you know, an absolute lost opportunity. This level of slash that's being left to rot and then become an environmental problem, knocking out bridges, causing a fatality recently, you know, and an absolute tragedy. It should be a higher value export. You know, the fact that we're able to leave these things. And it just shows how we've still got this raw log mentality in our forestry. And if you look overseas, there are really interesting things. And there's a company that I've done some work with um, called Futurity who are trying to do these 
um, biorefineries to take Pinus radiata and then break it down into, you know, its, its constituent materials, like get the lignin out of it and then turn that into advanced chemicals that currently are derived from things, you know, made out of petrol or petrochemical derived. And overseas, the EU has put enormous amounts of um, money and support yeah. into researching and developing this technology. And here, you, you know, there's, there's, the, there's the industry transformation plan, there's Scion, that the government um, organisation that, that, that supports so much research in the space. There's lots of good starts, but where is the okay. actual work to, to start making this a more high-value material? What do you say to that, Gary? Well, I, I agree, uh, and, and I think that with regulation, with stricter environmental regulation, will come that kind of innovation. At the moment, it's... Uh, it's cheaper and nastier for them to just leave it on the ground. But if the regulatory settings don't allow that anymore, then you're going to get innovation. You're going to get people looking at biofuels, at bioenergy, at um, you know other uses, particularly you know around areas where you've got a a mill like like Taranaki, for instance. So I, I do think. I mean, I've always said I think the the solution that we need to get to here is. Uh, an update of the National Environmental Standards on Plantation Forestry. That's the pointy end of you know what will make the sector sit up and take notice. Now, when you called for uh, a formal independent commission into Slash, I think it was about January the 11th or 12th, uh, the New Zealand Forestry Association, when you called for it, they said that your comments were, quote-unquote, way out of line. Have, yeah. they, have they since changed their tune? Well, yes, they have. They have, and, and uh, you know, it's it's interesting the way that the court of public opinion uh, comes brings pressure on on the sector to change, and and they've kind of uh, uh, proven themselves to be reasonably fleet-footed in that respect. <laughs> okay, all right, Gary Kiora, thank you for your time. That's Gary Taylor there from the Environmental Defence Society. He's the chief executive. Uh, uh, Text come through. I'm at Rissington. It's raining, and expect more tonight. Temp bridges up. Hope it gets through the next few days. If you're in Hawke's Bay or uh, areas where it is uh, starting to rain, uh, keep in touch with us. Two one zero one. And loving your nominations, by the way, for the best guitar solo of all time. Um, Killing two birds with one stone, as they say, a transistors and best guitar solo. Nick in Albany is listening on a 15-year-old AM FM Walkman. And says Jimi Hendrix, Purple Haze, hashtag, obviously. Uh, good on you, Nicky. Well, it's not obvious, actually, because there's a lot of good guitar solos in the world. We talk about that at 4.30. Um, but to this now, turning our focus to Northland, one of the regions hit hard in the cyclone. And the main issue has been the lack of access with alternative routes not really up to scratch either. State Highway 1 across the Brindurwins were damaged by really huge slips. And Tim Robinson in the week called this a roading emergency, not just a crisis. And Tim Robinson is the Northland Chamber of Commerce President. Welcome, Tim. Kia ora, welcome. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Pleasure. Now, earlier in the week, it looked like the Brindurwins could have been closed for at least a month. I understand what we're hearing is that's been revised down a bit? So there's, and I use, use the term carefully, hope, that um, that there could be one lane open with, uh, within about a week to a week and a half's time. Um, I guess 
some of us probably a little bit more cynical about that because we, we had all sorts of undertakings um, after the um, the previous closures that was only for a day or two, and of course that turned into uh, into two and a half weeks. So, look, I guess we'll we'll sort of wait and see what happens. But um, I mean, look. Don't get me wrong. Really want, want to take my hat off to uh, to the contractors and those that are working to, mm. to do the work to get it open. They are absolutely absolute heroes. Those guys. Indeed, Tim and I have heard on the ground and anecdotally uh, one of those working that says this job is just massive. It is such an enormous job working all day around the clock. There's even suggestion. I think I remember by the mayor that um, the future of the Brindewans is kind of up in the air. Yeah, look, I, I think just to put that into a little bit of context, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it, it, I guess, in, in, I guess, at a philosophical level, yes, it should absolutely be uh, be up in the air because I think that it has been identified probably for forty years that it is not an ideal route. And, right. and what's interesting, I guess, is that, I mean, NZTA have had a plan for for close to fifteen years now for a proper expressway which bypasses Brindewan altogether. Um, and I think that you know what, what the chamber's been agitating about is saying, look, the plan the plan has actually existed for quite a long time. Unfortunately, there's been too many flip flops on on press and go, and then hitting the stop button, then press and go again, and then hitting stop again. And and I think what what we're saying, and that's why we declared a, a rating emergency, is that you know enough's enough. You know the infrastructure is not fit for purpose, and for I guess for Taitokaro as a region, and of course bearing in mind it's not just uh, Whangarei to Auckland. You know the, the issues around uh, the Mangamuka Gorge. And the fact that's been out of, not, out of operation for nine months now and counting, um, you know, and so Kai Tai and beyond, you know, they're, they're sort of stuck with additional travel um, because there's no alternative routes. And I guess, that, you know, the clear message that we're saying is that we, we do need the investment in, you know, the long-term investment in, in roading infrastructure, which is resilient and sustainable. And I guess if we use the example of, you know, the Waikato Expressway, which I just had the pleasure of driving along today, mm. um, you know, that remained open the whole way through Gabriel. So, you know, services and, uh, you know, goods could, could, uh, could travel. Oh, it's a very good uh, road, that one, Tim. Yeah. Let's just bring our panel, Alexia. Yeah, Tim, I mean, I know Taitokarao's geography, I mean, when Maui fished up that fish, he certainly cut it into tiny little bits, didn't he? I mean, it's just you fly up there and it's, you know, hills and hills and gullies and gullies. Is there, I mean, is how much is it going to take to really fix Northland's infrastructure? Because it seems to me it's almost like a Herculean task. Well, I probably would, you know, probably question that a little bit. I mean, I mean, I think that when you consider... I mean, there's already been a big chunk of work done. I mean, I mean, we're already as far north as Walkworth anyway, uh, with the um, the new the, the expressway extension, yeah, which is yeah. due to open sometime this year. That looks so, amazing too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And another great piece of engineering. And 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 I guess you know, I mean, look, don't don't hear me wrong. We are talking. We, we, this is measured in billions of dollars, not millions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd suggest we're probably up for another one between one point two and one point five billion to to complete that road to um, you know to Whangarei itself. Um, you know, to, to, to fix the uh, fix the issues in the far north. Um, I mean, there's two big detours needed. I mean, we need to sort of somehow um, fix um, fix between Toai and Kawakawa as well, because that that is a very fragile piece of road. And again, that's probably you know hundreds of millions of dollars um, in terms of rerouting that and, and building a, a proper resilient um, highway. That you know, two lanes for that is fine, uh, but it needs to be resilient and built in such a way no. that it, uh, it doesn't keep getting washed out. Simon. Yeah, and what is the thinking there? Like, you know, with, with, with a challenge of this scale, 
there's also an opportunity for how do you build back in a way that is going to be more climate resilient and make long-term jobs in the area and uh, leave it better than it was found. Like, what's the what's the opportunity that could be found here? Oh, look, it's, it's massive opportunity. And, and I think when you sort of consider the... You know some of the you know the, the I guess the um, the regional innovation projects that are you know that are on the cards at the moment. Um, you know it, 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 it really does open up massive opportunity because when you actually have you know new you know greenfield growth opportunities, if you've got a, a, a transport infrastructure network that allows you know those industries to then uh, to feed into into markets both um, you know both nationally and internationally. You know, you've got a really sustainable model then in terms of, you know, future proofing for, uh, for for your population growth. You know, providing the opportunities for um, for youth as they, you know, they don't have to don't have to leave Northland to get educated and to and to find great jobs. Um, and I think, you know, back to your point around, you know, climate, you know, climate, um, yeah, climate friendly development. What it's actually providing is is, is infrastructure which uh, which is very low carbon footprint because it's accessible and easy for um, whether it be electric or, or hydrogen um, vehicles. Uh, what it means is those vehicles have got access twenty four seven. Very good to have you on, Tim. Thank you very much. All the best. We'll keep in touch with you, Tim Robinson, there, the Northland Chamber of Commerce president. It is 26 past four. You're on the panel on RNZ National. Best guitar solo, Gary. Excuse me, Gary Moore, still got the blues for you. That's an unreal solo, I've got to say. Wallace, I grew up in Motueka Valley. Back then, the New Zealand Forest Service, i.e. the taxpayers, grew and harvested the forestry. They cleaned up the mess and locals were allowed to click the firewood. Not anymore. Around 2010, the area was devastated by slash. It just kept on happening. Overseas companies just take the money and they run. The panel with Alexi Russell and Simon Pound and in something completely different. I thought I might mention this because this has been doing the rounds, hasn't it, internationally. Classic children's books author by or by Roald Dahl, uh, books rather, have been partly rewritten to remove language now deemed too offensive. References to people being fat and ugly have been removed from much-loved books, including Matilda, the BFG, and James and the Giant Peach. The Oompa Loompas from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, they are now gender-neutral. Here's a snippet from The Twits. Mrs Twit was no better than her husband. She did not, of course, have a hairy face. It was a pity she didn't, because that, at any rate, would have hidden some of her fearful ugliness. You have never seen a woman with an uglier face. But the funny thing is that Mrs. Twit wasn't born ugly. She'd had quite a nice face when she was young. The ugliness had grown upon her year by year as she got older. Indeed. So, yeah, Roald Dahl, some of the most loved and successful works for children there. I've got to admit, never the biggest fan of Roald Dahl. Just went over my head when I was young. Really? But he's written for adults. His books are really clever. Uh, But are they? Yeah, and nasty and clever and twisty. Yeah, uh, look, I was was more Willard Price myself. I mean, that, that, so, the, the edge to Roald Dahl's books is what made them surprising and yeah. interesting children but, books. And, I mean, if you look at his life and his writing, I mean, the amazing thing is that they aren't worse. I mean, he my, had awful, okay. awful views and but treated like, people awfully. It's like Dr. Seuss. I mean, in yeah. order to be a fantastic children's author, do you have to be a little bit racist or a little bit 
horrible to develop these horrible ideas swirling around in your head because they're the best ones almost. Well, what are you both saying? You're both saying that we have to uh, accept um, the people, author's nastiness no, I think and inability to move and change the times. Like when they change the Dr. Seuss Really ones. inappropriate stuff. If you don't like it, don't read it. You know? Just like yeah. Dr. Seuss. On the inappropriate scale, that doesn't seem to be at the very worst end of things. But yeah, part of that edge is part but, but of can the you, can you not, surprise can, factor in those I, kids' I books. I guess, can you not understand or appreciate the many who might say, you know, guess what? Um, people have to move with the times. Times change. You can't be Alexia and Simon stuck in the 70s. Well, Jane Austen's stuck in the what? <laughs> Well, yeah, and, and, <laughs> was that, but we still read it. So, and I, th- I, th- I think you know, um, you the originals are still available, and if you would like to read one that has been changed, that option is there for you, and the original is still available. So, a lot of these conversations become so absolutist uh, when maybe they don't have to be well, so absolutist. Well, uh, another passage from the Witches that originally described a fat little brown mouse has been changed to little brown mouse. I mean, seriously, do you need, do, do you need the fat? I mean, do you even need to say brown? Just say, there's the mouse. Yes, let's take all the colour out of it. What a great idea. The weird thing is this is being done by his estate, so it has full cooperation of his, you know... Because they recognise the need to change. They they might be a little bit sensitive because they know what his letters are like. They know what he was like in life. All right, so my question to our audience is, uh, should... Books, even if they are classics, should they adapt and change with the times, or should they be stuck where they were when they're written? That's my question. You text me two one zero one. Alexia and Simon says stuck where they're written. Love to hear your response. You can email me the panel at rnz dot co dot nz. It's time for headlines.